Two texts in front of us this morning. Again, Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. And then uh, about halfway through, we'll begin to kind of synthesize Philippians 4, 4 through 7 in there and pull some practical thoughts uh, for some application. But here's, here's the bottom line, friends. Every single one of us, without exception, is anxious. Every single one of us, without exception, worries And that is a result of the fact that we live in a Genesis 3 fallen world. And so we all struggle to differing degrees with sinful, inordinate self-concern. Just another way of saying worry. Worry is sinful, inordinate self-concern. It's preoccupation with self. For the problem-solving types among us this morning, let me give you an equation for worry. It would look a little something like this. Preoccupation with self or preoccupation with self-concern, or eyes on me, plus distrust in the character of God equals worry. Eyes on me plus a distrust in the character, the nature, and the attributes of God equals worry. That's the equation for worry. As we'll see from our text this morning, we all struggle with worry and anxiety ultimately because we struggle with distrust. We distrust that God is really who he said he is and that God will really do what he has said he will really do. All of our worry and all of our anxiety is ultimately rooted in distrust. Ultimately, as we'll see here in a few minutes, it is rooted in a distrust that is attached to the idol of control. The idol of control creates distrust in the character of God, which is demonstrated in our worry and anxiousness. Though we may never verbalize our distrust in the particular equation that I just mentioned, eyes on me plus distrust in the character of God equals worry, though we may never verbalize distrust in those particular terms, our thinking and our actions, that is our worry and our anxieties, demonstrate that we struggle to believe two fundamental truths about God. Number one, that he is sovereignly in control of every circumstance, every facet of my life. I struggle to believe that that is true. That God is really in control. It's easy to trust that God is in control in a controlled environment such as this. But our theology is born in the fire of affliction. Which is just another way of saying what we say we believe to be true about God is really put to the test. Rubber really meets the road when we have to put it into action. Okay. Our worry and our anxieties demonstrate that we struggle to believe two fundamental truths about God. First, that God is sovereignly in control of every circumstance that comes to pass in my life. And secondly, that He cares. That God really cares and He desires to be intimately involved in my life and the circumstances that He does indeed ordain for me. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning. I encourage you to stand if you have the ability. A bit longer text this morning, but we're going to read it in its entirety. This is Matthew recording Jesus' words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is what he pens in Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34. Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or about what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither reap nor sow nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. 
Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? Why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious about anything, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after or run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Friends, the grass withers and the flower fades, as we see in our text. But the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. What I'm going to do as far as our passage in Matthew is concerned this morning is I'm basically just going to outline it for you. And then as we turn our attention to Philippians 4, I'm going to hopefully fill it in a little bit for you. But before we get there, what does worry mean? I mean, Jesus launches out in this text here, verse 25, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life. If you have the New American Standard, your translation, and probably some others says, do not worry about your life. What does worry mean? What does it mean? Well, the Greek word for anxious or worry in verse 25 comes from the word meridzo, carries the idea of being pulled apart, to be divided, to be separated into pieces. When you think about worry, when you think about anxiousness, think about being pulled into pieces. That's what worry does to us. That's what anxiousness does to us. It pulls us apart. What are some typical things that you and I probably worry about on any given day? Listen to this list and see if you don't see yourself here, friends. I know that I certainly do. How are we going to pay the bills? What will he or she think if they really, really know me? How am I going to accomplish everything that's on my plate? What if I'm diagnosed with a life-altering illness or disease? Will I fail? Will I succeed? Should I take this job or that job? What if I don't get the job? What if I lose my job? I'm such a sinner. Will God really forgive me? What if I'm treated adversely for my faith in Christ? Will I pass the test? Am I really saved? What if they choose someone else over me? What if my children don't turn out right? In other words, godly. What if I can't have children? What if he or she doesn't keep their commitment to me? What if the airplane crashes? What if they ask me to speak? What if I say all the wrong things? What if they put me to sleep and I never wake up? What if we've only seen the floor beginning to drop out of the bottom of our economy? What if this candidate wins? What if that candidate wins? And we could go on and on and on. This, this is just the tip of the iceberg as it pertains to the things that we often worry about. But when we worry, we need to remember what is taking place is that we're being pulled apart in heart and mind, literally being separated into pieces. And we're asking ourselves some fundamental questions concerning the character and the nature and the attributes of God. First of all, God, are you really in control? 
of every circumstance that comes to pass in my life? And then secondly, God, do you, do you even really care? Are you even, are you even concerned? about the things that take place in my life. Point number one, if you're taking notes this morning, would encourage you to do so is this. Worry is rooted in a distrust of God's goodness. Worry is rooted in a distrust of God's goodness or God's character. Worry is an indicator of wrong thinking. Okay? Every time you worry, every time you're tempted to be anxious, let me just remind you that worry and anxiousness is an indicator of wrong thinking. We worry when we fail to apply the character and the promises of God to our circumstances. We have our circumstances, right? Sometimes they're good circumstances. Sometimes they're bad circumstances. Sometimes they're worrisome circumstances. What, what happens when we worry and become anxious is we fail to apply the character, nature, and attributes of God to my circumstances. And so ultimately, I distrust God's goodness. Well, how is worry wrong thinking? A, is worry is wrong thinking about our life's purpose. Worry is wrong thinking about our life's purpose. Let me direct your attention back to verse 25. Jesus says, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life or what you'll eat or what you'll drink, nor about your body, what you'll put on it. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, the first thing that we need to say here is that this text is connected to the preceding text. We know that because Jesus says, therefore. Every time you see therefore in your Bible, what question do you need to ask yourself? What is therefore, therefore? There are some scholars amongst us. Well, the therefore here in verse 25 connects us back to the preceding words of Jesus. In other words, worry and anxiousness aren't isolated. Jesus teaches us that worry and anxiousness are the result of misplaced treasure. That's the context that Jesus is speaking in here. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Two different places your treasure can be. It can either be focused on earthly treasure or heavenly treasure. As a result, you can either have a good eye, a healthy eye, or a bad eye. As a result, you'll serve one of two different masters, either God or material possessions. What Jesus is telling us is therefore, or as a result, or in other words, if you are, if your heart is tethered to the treasures of earth, worry and anxiousness will be the result. Worry and anxiousness will be the result. When we fix our hopes on the treasures of this world, we will most certainly fear the loss of those treasures. We'll fear that they might be lost. If we mistakenly think that our ultimate purpose is to protect our frail and temporary frames, in other words, what will I eat and what will I wear and, and what, will I, what will I dress in? If we think that our ultimate purpose is connected to what takes place this side of eternity, what takes place under heaven, that is today, tomorrow, until I breathe life's final breath or Jesus steps back into this world, if all my hopes, if all my cares, if all my concerns, and if all my treasures are here, then I will worry that I lose it all. I'll worry that I lose it all. I'll try to protect this temporary frame. It's here today and gone tomorrow, and I'll be riddled, riddled with fear, riddled with worry, and riddled with anxiety. Worry's rooted in a distrust of God's goodness. It's wrong thinking. It's primarily wrong thinking in verse 25 about our life's purpose. 
about why we're here in the first place. Life is more than food. Life is more than the body. Life is more than clothing. You were made for more than the here and now. Genesis 1, 26 and 27, you were made in the image of God. You're an eternal being. You will spend eternity somewhere. Your life consists in more than the here and now. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. And so when I worry, it's wrong thinking about my purpose. It's wrong thinking about why God made me in the first place. B on your outline. Worry's wrong thinking about our place in God's plan. Look at verses 26 through 30. Jesus says again, look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about your clothing? Let me just direct your attention to the lilies of the field. Jesus says how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that Solomon in all of his glory, which was great, was not arrayed like one of these. But God, don't forget, friends, that God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today, and is thrown into the oven tomorrow. As a result, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Now, let's think about this illustration here. As a matter of fact, there's two illustrations here in verses 26 through 30. The birds and the lilies. And what Jesus is trying to impress upon us here is that both the birds and the lilies have an absence of concern. And the fact that the birds and the lilies have an absence of concern teaches us a huge lesson concerning our reliance upon God. Jesus notes that the sparrows don't engage in the agricultural processes like sowing and reaping, yet they don't starve. They're not not involved in the process like the farmer is, but yet the sparrows don't starve. Now, it's important to note that though the sparrows neither sow nor reap, neither are they idle. Jesus is not here in our text encouraging us to idleness. In other words, just be like the sparrow who doesn't sow or reap and God will take care of you. No, hardly or scarcely anything can be said to be more busy than the sparrow. I mean, just think about those little things, just flitting about everywhere, always gathering, always, always on the search for the worm or the food or the, or the twig or the stick they're going to make their nest out of, storing up for winter, taking care of their young. Is anything busier than the sparrow? The point that Jesus is making is though the sparrows are in constant search for food, not a one of them is suffering from hypertension. I mean, here they go from A to B to C to D to E to F. You know, they're, they're, they're having to, to search for things, but, but, but none of them, none of them are riddled by fear. None of them are riddled by anxiety. God takes care of them. And notice also that Jesus doesn't say their heavenly father takes care of them. Look at your Bible. Whose heavenly father takes care of them? Your heavenly father takes care of them. You see, the birds... Though they are a part of God's wonderful creation, they're not made in the image of God. Your heavenly Father takes care of even the sparrows. He feeds them. The very Father in whom the anxious have ceased to trust even provides for the birds. Just let that soak in for a moment, friends. Martin Luther once said, God makes the birds our schoolmasters and our teachers. It's a great challenge to us that a helpless sparrow should become a theologian and a preacher to the wisest of men. Whenever you hear a sparrow, you're listening to an excellent preacher. Remember that when you leave here today. Every time you hear the chirp of a bird, remember that you're listening to an excellent preacher who's declaring God takes great.
great care of me. He'll take great care of you. God is both the cook and the host for this little sparrow. Every day he feeds innumerable little birds from his hand. We watch it daily, yet we worry. Yet we worry. It's an old poem that was written at one point that personifies the little birds here. It says this, Said the robin to the sparrow, I should really like to know why these ancient human beings, or anxious human beings, rush about and worry so. Said the sparrow to the robin, Friend, I think that it must be that they have no heavenly father such as cares for you and me. Now, isn't it interesting? Of course, Jesus is not saying I'm the heavenly father of the sparrow here, but from the sparrow's perspective, they have one that takes care of them, and they look at us and they say, why are you so anxious? Why are you so anxious? Jesus points first to the sparrow, then he points to the lilies of the field. He says, consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you that even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Think about the lilies of the field for a second here. What Jesus is really speaking about is just the the wildflowers of the field. The lilies of the field, they were common, ordinary wildflowers. There wasn't necessarily anything special about them other than the fact that they made for great fuel. But if you were able to zoom in on the petals of one of these lilies you would see an intricacy and a magnificence that puts Solomon's robes as majestic as they were and as costly as they were to shame. If you put the petal of a lily under a microscope or under a magnifying glass, you will see a magnificence that outstrips Solomon's robes. But it's just an ordinary flower. It neither toils nor works nor has any cares or concerns It's beautiful to the eye, but it's most helpful to be burned, to create fuel for the fire, and yet your heavenly Father, your heavenly Father, takes care of them. Though the common lilies don't labor, they don't toil, they show the care and the concern of God over creation. And so the point that Jesus is making here is that you and I, who were made in God's image, are certainly not left out to dry when it comes to the cares and the concerns of this world. God is sovereignly in control of every circumstance of your life, and he, he cares. He cares. And the sparrows of the air and the lilies of the field, they just serve as a gentle rebuke for our foolish nervousness. And then look at verse 27 here, back up in the middle. Jesus says, worrying and being riddled with anxiousness, it doesn't add an hour to your life. You've heard the old saying, Worry's like a rocking chair. It gives you something to do, but it gets you nowhere. Not only does worry and anxiousness not add to the quality of your life, but neither does it add to the span or the duration of your life. Even if we could eliminate in some way and ensure in every way that everything we worried about never truly happened, it would not prolong our life one split second. That's what Jesus is saying here. Worry is wrong thinking about our place in God's plan. See, worry is wrong thinking about the character of God. It's wrong thinking about the character of God. Look at verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, that's the pagans, the lost, seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. 
John MacArthur notes, Christians who worry and believe that God can redeem them, break the shackles of Satan, take from from hell to heaven, put them into his kingdom and give them eternal life, but they just don't think that he can take care of the concerns and the provisions for today. I mean, we believe that God can, can transfer us from the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of light, but we struggle to believe that he can take care of the cares and concerns and that which needs to be provided for today. It's foolishness. Worry is absolute madness. And I'm a worrier. It, it challenges me to stand before you and and, and to encourage you to set your eyes upon Jesus, to fix your eyes on heavenly things, not the things of earth. When I stand here and I'm, I'm guilty, I am an anxious man, and I am a worrier. That's one of the reasons why we all need a Savior. Jesus hung on the cross because of your worry. Jesus hung on the cross because of your anxiousness. Why? Because it's rooted in distrust of his character. It's sin. It's cosmic treason. It's not just a little distrust. Our worry is cosmic treason, friends. Our distrust is a bigger deal than we think it is. I think about the disciples in Mark 4 who chastised Jesus when the storm rocked the boat of their little world. You're probably familiar with the story. I mean, here are these disciples. Jesus is asleep in the front of the boat, panic-stricken and riddled with fears. They wake Jesus saying, Teacher, teacher, do you not... What's the word? Care. Do you not care that we're perishing? You see, from the disciples' perspective, Jesus was unaware of their plight. They thought that Jesus was oblivious to their ministry, or their their, their misery, that he had forsaken them. And don't we oftentimes, too, feel the same way in the middle of life storms? We mistakenly conclude that we're all alone, that no one's home, that not only God knows what's, uh, not, not even God knows what's happening to me or how we're feeling. You see, Christian, brother, sister, nothing could be farther from the truth. God knows every wave that falls on you. And not only does he know every wave that's falling on you, but he's using every wave for a divine purpose. And that divine purpose is to ready you for the wedding day when you stand before him in glory. And so instead of being riddled with fear, instead of being eaten alive, By worry and anxiousness, the things that we're tempted to worry and be anxious over, turn those into thanks instead. Thank God for those circumstances, which he sovereignly and divinely allows to come to pass in your life that you might be tempted to worry about. Thank him for what he's using them to produce in you. I read a quote recently. It said this, if we knew what God knows, we would only ask for what God gives. Think about that for a moment. If we knew what God knows, we would only ask for what God gives. And we'd be thankful for it. Instead of being anxious about it. And instead of worrying about it. When life seems most out of control, it could never be more in control. When life, from your perspective and my perspective, seems to be most out of control, it could never be more in control. Worry is rooted in a distrust of God's goodness. 
Secondly, Jesus. Jesus, thank God, has the answer for our anxious hearts. Hey there, God knows what you need, so trust him. He knows what you need, so trust him. He says, don't, don't be anxious about anything, saying, what shall we eat or drink or what shall we wear? The, the Gentiles, the lost, seek after these things. Your heavenly Father knows that you need them. There is not a concern that you have or have ever had or ever will have that God is not intimately aware of and knows about. God is never, ever, ever put in a position where he is trying to backpedal you out of a circumstance that has caused you worry and great concern. He knows what you need. Trust him. If we really believe that he knew what we needed, then we would always thank him and ask for what he provides. God knows what you need. That's the answer for our anxious hearts is a, is a firm trust and belief a firm grasp on the fact that God knows my needs and he cares. He knows my needs and he cares. B, God's called you to a higher purpose. That purpose is to seek him. Look at verse 33, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Boy, I mean, we could spend weeks just expositing verse 33 here. But here's the bottom line. When you seek first the kingdom of God, your focus is no longer on what you will wear or what you will eat or what you will drink. When, when your wholehearted focus... Now, we, we talked about the bad eye last week, about having one eye set on heavenly things and one eye set on earth. That's double vision. But when we are truly focused and we're truly seeking, that's both eyes on the kingdom of God, your focus is not is not on the earthly temporal things anymore that cause us the most care and concern, the most anxiousness, the most angst of soul and heart. If we fix our eyes on seeking Christ, there will scarcely be any room for concern about lesser matters. In other words, if we seek God's kingdom and His righteousness, the cares of today will flee. They'll flee. And the things of earth will what? Grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. God has called you to a higher purpose. We get confused about our purpose. Remember back in verse 25? We, 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 we think our purpose is, is the things that we eat and we drink. And Jesus says, your life is more than those things. We get confused about it. So we need to remember that God's called us to a higher purpose. The higher purpose is verse 33, to seek his kingdom and his righteousness. And in doing so, will be far less concerned about what we wear, what we eat, and what we drink. And then see, God has designed you to live one day at a time. Therefore, obey him. Obey him. What is Jesus' prescription? What is Jesus' answer for our anxious hearts? It's that we would trust him, that we would seek him, and that we would obey him. Look at verse 34. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. I mean, Jesus personifies worry here in verse 34 when he speaks about tomorrow being anxious for itself. He personifies it. You see, worry is seen as a power, almost a person that takes hold of you. And friends, I'll tell you this. Of course, you're already well aware. Worry has a vivid imagination. Worry has a vivid imagination. It thinks down the road and asks, what if? And what if? 
And what if? And what if? And before we know it, we feel like we are being beaten and battered in the spin cycle of the washing machine. Just back and forth and back and forth. And what if? And what if? And what if? And what if? Hey, friends, here's a question. What if? What if? What if you walk into the doctor's office and you get the terminally ill diagnosis? What if the airplane crashes? What if your children don't turn out like you wish they would? What if your children spring up quickly and then under the cares and concerns of the world, they walk away from the faith? What if the people that you really care and concern uh, or care about talk behind your back and they say things about you? What, what if God's still on the throne? God's still on the throne. Worry can envision all sorts of possibilities and eventualities. And as a result, it's a very convenient wave for Satan to ride upon. He would love to have you just bouncing in your heart and mind from one what if to the next. But the call here is to obey Jesus. And Jesus says sufficient for today is its own trouble. You see, future worry is overwhelming. Future worry, worrying about the future is overwhelming. And there's a reason. There's a reason for that. And that reason is because we don't have grace for tomorrow. We have grace for today. You'll have grace for tomorrow when the sun rises tomorrow morning. But you have grace for the troubles of today. And then tomorrow, there'll be new mercy and new grace. For the cares and the concerns and the troubles of tomorrow. And God will still be sitting on the throne. And so if all the what-ifs come to pass, our hope is built in nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. One of Satan's simplest tricks and most effective devices is to draw our attention to things that we cannot do anything about. And that we would be tempted to live there. That we would take up residence in the house of things that we cannot do anything about. And forget that God is sovereignly in control. Forget that God cares. Forget that he still sits on the throne. See, there's nothing worse than a crisis that can't be fixed. If our hours are spent with the thoughts of today's problems, which are not accessible today, and which we can't touch with today's resources, then we'll be doomed to worry. Sufficient for today, friends. I grew up in a suburb on the east side of Indianapolis, And in Indianapolis, like in most uh, major metropolitan areas, you can take a horse and carriage ride in a downtown area. And what is it that you see on every single one of those horse and carriage rides? What's on the side of that horse's face? Blinders. And what are those blinders there for? It's to keep that horse from being distracted with the blinking car light over here or the car horn over there or the person speaking loudly or the drama or the commotion taking place over there. It's to keep his eyes fixed forward. Friends, I would submit to you that we need to keep our eyes fixed on things above, Colossians 3. Keep your eyes fixed on things above. Keep your eyes fixed on today's grace, which is sufficient for today's problems not tomorrow's problems.
the tide of confidence in God's sufficiency must wash out our worry. The tide of our, of our rooted confidence in God's sufficiency must wash out our worry. Spurgeon once said this, he said, Anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows, but it certainly does empty today of its strength. Right? Worrying about tomorrow will zap you. It'll drain you. And it doesn't do anything about tomorrow's sorrows. It just empties today of its strength. How true is that? You see, worry, worrying about something, becoming anxious about something, doesn't mean that you'll escape your troubles. If you worry about it, it just means that you'll be unfit to cope with those troubles when they do come. Let me rewind that for you. Worry doesn't mean that you'll escape your troubles. Jesus said, there's much trouble in this world, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. Okay? Worry doesn't mean that you will escape your troubles. It just means that you'll be unfit to cope with them when they do come. And so, friends, let me ask you this question again. Let me, let me land the plane. We'll deal with Philippians chapter 4 next week. Because I want you to be able to digest what's going on here in Matthew chapter 6. But let me ask you this question. What if, what if your greatest fears come true? What if your greatest fears actually come true? You see, the greatest deliverance that Jesus accomplishes for us is to save us from our greatest danger. Let me rewind. Let me, give me your attention here for just a moment. The greatest deliverance that Jesus accomplishes on our behalf is saving us from our greatest danger. That greatest danger is exposure to his wrath. That is your greatest danger, friends. We worry, will the plane crash? Will the plane not crash? Will they talk about me? Will they not talk about me? Will I get the job? Will I not get the job? But not a one of those things is your greatest danger. Your greatest danger, as well as mine, is being exposed to the wrath of a thrice holy God. And Jesus, in his goodness, in his grace, and in his mercy, delivers us. He accomplishes for us what we could never accomplish on our own by saving us from that which is our greatest danger. You see, for most of us, the wrath of God is not the felt fear that plagues most of us day to day. But this tells us something about how, just, about how uh, disoriented our fears really are. The fact that God's wrath is not in our hearts and in our minds on a daily basis tells us just something about how disordered our fears can be. Again, trusting God doesn't mean that our worst fears won't happen. Rather, it means that what we fear most won't happen in Christ. Or what we should fear most won't happen in Christ. And that's that Jesus stood in my place on Calvary's cross. That Jesus bore the wrath reserved for, more, for me. That Jesus died and rose again. And that at this very moment, he stands interceding on my behalf in heaven. And so therefore, what do I have to fear? Jesus has squelched what should be my greatest fear because it is my greatest danger. Why should I fear any lesser thing? 
why should I fear that he's any less in control of those minuscule in comparison cares of today? Paul wrote this in Romans chapter 8. He said, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? And then he gives us a list of things that we oftentimes fear. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword separate us from the love of Christ? As it is written, Paul says, for your sake, we're being killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep before the the slaughter. And then he goes on and he says, no. In all things, we're more than conquerors through him who loved us. In other words, Jesus stood in our place. He squelched what is our greatest danger. He bore the wrath reserved for me. As a result, Paul says, I am sure. I am sure or I'm confident that neither life nor death nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in creation shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why would we worry about any lesser thing if our greatest need and our greatest danger has been taken care of? What if? What if what you worry most comes to pass? What you should worry most, if you know Jesus Christ, won't come to pass. Friends, if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus savingly, our our hearts cry, our plea to you is that you would fly to Jesus. Matter of fact, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he said, we implore you, the, the, the original language there is we beg you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. Turn from your sin. Turn from from seeking the treasures of this world. Repent. means to change your mind about your love for those things. And instead, turn and set your eyes on Jesus. Receive his mercy and grace that that was accomplished at Calvary's cross and provided free of cost to you. Receive it. That you might become child of the risen God, that your sin may be atoned for, paid for, that the righteousness which you need may be credited from Jesus' account to your account. You see, when we realize that we're standing in the righteousness of Christ, the things of earth grow strangely dim. 